us pray. Father God, we are coming before you in need. We do that because you are willing to provide. You are eager to help. You are definitely um, at work making us holy. And so we would ask that we would understand more of what that means today. That you may teach us words that give life, words that protect the church, words that lead us into further holiness, Lord, that through moments like this, that you would um, make make a people that glorify you all the more, that your name would be made more holy here as we seek for your name to be hallowed in this place and amongst these people and in these hearts. Lord, these are all things that only you can do. So we come with open hands, asking that you would likewise open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth, because your word is truth. And so please bless us in this hour. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, as we reach the end of our letters to the Thessalonians, we're going to make sure and not rush to the finish line, but take our time to get there. And we're going to pause here in verses 13 through 15 and examine something about church life that is normative in the scriptures, something that's normal, something that safeguards, protects, and endorses the holiness of God's people. And as surely we learn from the first letter to the Thessalonians, this is God's will, that we would be made holy. It's a phrase and a term and idea that I think, uh, by and large, the church has really forgotten about. We've kind of become more into the routine of what we do instead of what we become, we are. I'll tell you a story to begin here from a brother pastor, a dear friend of mine. He, he was explaining to me something that he was experiencing in his first couple of years uh, with his current people. They had a, a long-standing member, I was telling Chris this before church, they had a long-standing member that uh, recently had gotten in trouble with the law. He was abusing his wife physically, a member of the church, a revered member of the church. And the, the young pastor was very taken aback by this, just very astonished, you know, that one of his members had been caught in this kind of gross sin. Uh, very became very public thing. And so he went to his fellow leaders and he was like, you know, we, we have to go to Bob about this issue. We have to work for renewal. We have to discover what's going on in his heart. We have to discover what's going on in his family. We have to help him out of this. We have to uh, admonish him for the gross immorality that he's been living in and leading his family in. And the response that he got from his leaders was, oh, that's just Bob. Don't worry about it. That's just Bob. That's what he does. Where have we sunk to? 
to where that sort of thing is allowed to be named amongst the people of God as normal. And the abnormal thing amongst the people of God is holiness. Where in the world are we? And I think it's because we've forgotten how we exist as God's people and what God has spoken in order to safeguard the holiness of his sheep. You know, 100 years ago, the term church discipline would have been a a normal thing to hear. It would have been an understood thing to hear. Anytime we hear the word discipline now, we kind of shirk from it. We kind of get a little uneasy about that word. But our biblical theology, our understanding of what God has said on the matter of discipline in all forms and all manners should be understood as a good thing, leading to further growth, both personally and corporately. And so the, the subtitle under this sermon is Renewing the Saints. That's what it's for. So as we begin to look at how Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians to deal with unrepentant sin, we need to take note of this and realize what it is for. If you understand church discipline to mean that we kick somebody to the curb and say, you know, good riddance, I don't want anything to do with that. The kind of church discipline that I'm talking about is something that war- that exposes sin and that warns people of the path that they're on, which will lead to destruction and may in fact bring them back or may in fact save them when they were not in the first place saved. You know, the first part of the gospel is always the uncovering of sin. This is what is contrary to God and who he is. This is what is something that is not characteristic of his kingdom or his kingdom citizens. And so if we are his kingdom citizens, why would we ever allow unholiness to be named among us? Certainly, as we battle the flesh in this life and have not reached glorification, it will be amongst us. Jesus has promised that, and therefore he's given us ways to deal with it. Paul's aware uh, aware of that, and Paul does not, hide or or shy away from dealing with it. So we have to understand it rightly, which is understanding it biblically, which is the only way to help somebody that is caught in such a gross immorality that they desire not to repent at first. So we'll be investigating much of this, but we start in verse 13 today. After this warning against idleness and how Paul has described the sin that's happening amongst some of the Thessalonians and what they're to do about it and how they're to handle this. And then you get to verse 13 and he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So the idea in verse 13 is that the brothers and sisters who have been dealing with these sinners are, are tired of it. They're they're growing disheartened by the fact that they are fulfilling their responsibility to bear each other's burdens and to help those in need, and they're being taken advantage of at some point, even though they're still called to continue to do this, they're still called to continue to bear with one another and show patience. We'll see that in a little bit, like in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, 
admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So the ongoing uh, responsibility of the brothers and sisters in the church is to work with other brothers and sisters in the church. If they're idle, admonish them. If they're, if they're weak, help them. If they're faint-hearted, encourage them. There is a constant giving that we are doing as brothers and sisters one to another. And, and Paul is asking them, don't grow discouraged in this. Don't grow disheartened in this. This, this will lead to good eventually. At some point in time, how we bear with one another, help one another, admonish one another, God will make sure that it works for good. If you look at Galatians 6, 9, Paul says to them, let us not grow weary, it's the same word there, let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now I want to look for a minute at Galatians chapter 6, especially in verses 1 through 10, because something very similar is happening here that Paul is addressing. And there's, there's always the temptation for those that aren't caught in the gross immorality to grow discouraged and disheartened with those that are. You know, it's messy when sinners get together and, uh, for a common purpose or for a common goal. It's difficult to work with one another. You ever been in a family? You know, now expand that out to a church. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. That word, restore, you should underline that, uh, that in your Bible. The way, the heart in which we deal with sin is a heart for restoration. It's not a heart for punishment. You know, and, and that's hard for us at times. You know, think about your, yourself as a parent, if you're a parent. When there's an offense you have a heart for justice because God is just, and so you want to bring justice. But what does God's justice do for his people? It restores them into holiness, into a right relationship with him. Read the law. Read Leviticus. Why is God wanting his people to repent? He wants them to be restored. Read Ezekiel. God takes no desire in the death of the wicked. He would rather we be restored. He would rather we learn holiness, grow in holiness. So if anyone's caught in this transgression, we who are spiritual are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That follows along with Jesus' whole remove the uh, log from your eye before you deal with someone's speck, you know. It's not to say that we aren't supposed to deal with the speck. It's that you're supposed to deal with your stuff first so that you're able to remove specks. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who bears with you? Come in my office and see something that our brother Ray made for me. It sits above my coffee bar. And in, in the theme of keeping with my weird infatuation with grizzly bears... Uh, Ray made this sign, and he has a, has a bear cut out, and the sign reads, bear with me, God is. You know, get it? <laughs> I mean, like, God is dealing with me with great patience and loving kindness every single day of my existence until I reach holiness for the sake of that fact. And are we doing the same thing with one another? Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, 
I like that phrase. When he is nothing, amen, he deceives himself. There is no room for pride in the Christian life. That must be a sin that we deal with head on. You are nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But let each, let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have, his own, his, will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then there's verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and listen, church, especially to those who are of the household of faith. If we have recognized through uh, voting someone into church membership, which we're called to do in Matthew 16, then we are recognizing them as a brother or sister in the household of faith, and we have ample opportunity to do good to them, especially, especially. And part of that good is what? Bearing with them for the sake of restoring them. It's up to them whether they're going to be restored or not. We'll just simply call out what is and what's not. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's a measure of faith in this. A measure of faith. There are eternal rewards and eternal fruit that you and I will not reap until that season. And that's hard. That's hard. Most of what we do here in this life is, is for the sake of seeing the fruit of it in this life. It's hard to capture this eternal mindset that somehow and in some way everything we do in the Lord will not be in vain. It means it won't be for nothing. It will be for something. You know, you ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe? And he's rousing the troops at the beginning of that movie, and he says, everything we do in life echoes in eternity. That's pretty true, really. I mean, and to look at all of life in that way, as unto the Lord, through the Lord, for the Lord, in the power of the Lord, will reap some sort of fruit. Maybe unseen and unknown until that time. I think that's part of the reason why Jesus informs us that, look, the, the last will be first, the, leadest, the, the least will be greatest. Because there are people that are laboring for decades and decades in this life with with not a whole lot of earthly fruit to show for it, but they labor with an eternal 
mindset and a hope in faith that their labor is not in vain and that God will do with it what he wills. And so when we get to that point in time where everybody is glorified, we will know saints that have never been known because they did things for an eternal reward, not for a temporary reward. They did things unseen. So, so be encouraged, at least by the words of Jesus, that he knows. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. He, that, that's where integrity comes from in the Christian life, is faith in Christ who knows all things and knows all men's hearts. You don't have to always... Get your notice or your likes for what it is you're doing. Jesus is watching. Do you believe that? And that allows you, that mindset allows you to continue on in this kingdom way happily, peacefully, joyfully. Even when you're dealing with these knucklehead brothers and sisters of yours that just don't seem to ever get it. So now we move to verse 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So, as we've talked about not getting discouraged and doing good and not getting discouraged and, and working with our brothers and sisters, we often wonder, well, when is enough enough? Or how patient is too patient? Or how much, how much must I help? Uh, the answer to those questions is yes. Uh, look at what he says in verse 14. Anyone that does not obey. They're not obeying. They're not listening. They're not walking in holiness. And they're not obeying the commands of Jesus and his word. How do you know they are refusing or not obeying? Well, Mark Dever says that uh, your spiritual life is other people's business. You know, we, we don't, we're, we're not the church of the living room. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We're tied to his body. To one another, members each of one another. Read First Corinthians uh, eleven through fourteen through fourteen. I mean, you you've been baptized into Christ. The church is His body. Welcome. You you've just been uh, brought into a community that has an eternal significance and eternal relationships, not only with God and Jesus, but with one another. We, we exist here as a family that moves beyond this time and this place and moves into eternity. And as we read through Scripture, the way the church is called to interact with each other and does interact with each other is that our spiritual lives are each other's business. If that weren't the case, then Paul really wouldn't have written any of his letters. He's concerned about every one of his spiritual children and brothers and sisters. And he's asking 
the brothers and sisters to be concerned with one another. We can go all the way back to the Ten Commandments and see this. The first four are vertical. They deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal horizontally, us with one another. You think God's concerned with how we do our business with one another? What's he tell us? He tells us, Jesus tells us in the Gospels that uh, they will, we will be known by our love for one another. The way that you do the, the one another commands in Scripture is by interacting with one another on a deep spiritual level. We've become so isolated in a point in history and time when we can be so connected through technology that we don't want anything to do with the intimate details of, of our spiritual lives, especially as brothers and sisters. No, we want to know. We want to encourage. We want to help. We want to be encouraged, and we want to help. We need to open the door, especially to our spiritual lives, and share with one another where we're at, where we're struggling, how we can help, how we can be of service, how we can pray. We need to stop hiding behind the facade that we're all okay. And we've, we've got it. Yeah, I know. That's all right. I got it. No. Every man, woman, and child in here needs another man, woman, or child to pray for them and to help them. You know, <laughs> I hate to do this to her, but sometimes my wife, in a, in a joking, teasing manner, I'll ask her what she's doing because I'm always interested in my wife. I always like to know what she's doing. And she'll have a smirk on her face. She'll say, none of your business. And then I always get her back and I say, well, you are my business. I said to her all the time. And I think she kind of likes that. She likes to know that I am concerned about her all the time how she's doing, what she's thinking, what she's encountering, how she's growing, what's attacking her. You are my business, period. I'm your business. We need to know this about each other. Okay, moving on. Look at uh, how Paul instructs the Corinthians to deal with something in their midst that is just even unheard of in the natural world at this point in time. First Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Listen, the story I told you at the beginning of our, of our sermon, that's something that, that the, the secular world doesn't even tolerate. And the church was tolerating it. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. We've talked a little bit about how you do that, right? What that means. That shunning is, is not really the term we would use but a, a redirecting of our relationship with somebody. 
somebody caught in such gross immorality that they don't even desire to repent of it or to recognize it as gross immorality causes us to interact with them on a different level than we do with brothers and sisters. It causes and and transforms all of our interactions to be geared towards seeking their repentance. Seeking their restoration. It's no longer a normal relationship. And it should not be. And there are things in the life of the church that we can do that to make somebody recognize that they are in danger. Not that they're just breaking the rules. No, they're in danger. Because if they are living in this unrepentant sin, that would signal to you and I that they don't have the Spirit of God in them, convicting them of such sin. And so what would that mean? That they're not believers. That they're not born again. That they are, in fact, on the path to destruction. Not just physically, temporally, financially, whatever it is, but they are on the path of destruction eternally. That's, what, that's, that's the deal here. That's what we're scared of. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did this in your name. He says, I don't know you. They didn't have a heart for Christ. They had a heart to do things, to get glory for themselves. It was self-seeking. It wasn't a born-again, transformed, new heart. He says in verse 15, you're to warn him as a brother. In other words, just because you're a member of the church no longer means you're immune to sin, even gross immorality of any kind. It means it may happen to your brothers. And we have a responsibility in dealing with that for the sake of their soul, because it's our business. Jonathan Lehman has a book on church discipline. I think you can find it in our library. If not, you can find it in my office. And he lists five purposes of church discipline. Number one, to expose sin. (laughs) We have to recognize what is causing us harm so that we can deal with it. And people, you know, it's possible. It's possible to not really... Uh, recognize something that is wrong in your heart or spirit until it's called out by the Lord through your brothers and sisters. That can happen. Pride is one of those things that can blind you and be so subtle that you can't see it until someone calls that out in you. So also, secondly, purpose of church discipline is to warn to warn each other of the path we're headed down. You know, you warn your loved ones of things they shouldn't do or are doing because you know that they're going to get hurt by doing it. That's why we warn each other of sin. Because it's going to hurt. It's going to be bad not only for you, but it's going to affect people around you. And most importantly, it's going to affect your witness as a brother or sister. Number three, another purpose, is to save. If, if we are proclaiming and living and practicing holiness and repenting of sin, we, we are proclaiming our, our need 
of salvation. We are proclaiming our need to be delivered from our sins. We are living in that reality. And so when we deal with what it means to be a fallen man or a fallen woman, seeking the Lord's grace and mercy, we are calling out the gospel consistently. And it may be something that God uses to call one of those who was uh, blinded to think that they were a believer but was not. Church discipline may be used to actually save somebody. Number four, it's to protect. Not just to protect that person, but to protect the church. We have mechanisms given by God to deal with harmful things in our midst. What did we just read in 1 Corinthians 5? Paul said, remove that. You don't have to bear with that. (laughs) Get his name off the membership roll and deal with him as an unbeliever. Seek salvation for him, the gospel, renewal for him, and protect the church for being liable for his sin and the result of it. And number five, he says, it's for presenting a good witness for Jesus. If I were looking for a church home and found out that this church uh, did not care that this member was beating his wife, do they know what Jesus came and died for? Do they know what Jesus lived for? (laughs) What are we saying about Christ when we don't protect the holiness of his body? We're not saying very many holy things about who he is. We are a living, breathing testimony to who Christ is. What do you want the world to know about him? God's holiness is is in direct contrast to our sin. And, And by allowing some of this gross immorality to continue without protecting holiness is to say that God is not holy. And if we're telling the world that God's not holy, then they're never presented with the the trouble of their own sin. And then you have chaos. You have a free-for-all. This becomes something other than the church of God. It becomes a club with a set of a few rules. And, you know, good on you for following them. If you don't, you know, just don't tell anybody. It'll be all right. No. We want to present a good witness for Jesus because the gospel is at stake. His holiness matters. And therefore it highlights the riches and depths and magnificence of his grace and mercy despite the fact that he's completely holy and we're completely sinful. You're telling me, First Baptist Church of Holt, that the holy God that you guys revere and recognize and follow in his holiness 
actually wants to know and love and, and transform me as something completely contrary to that? Yeah, that's what we're saying. Wow. He must be rich in mercy and grace. That's what we want to say. Um, it's really important we know how to do this, right? Because, <laughs> like I said, you can't, you can't just, church discipline is just not judgment. Like, oh, Bob's beating his wife. He's gone. Don't come back. Lock the doors, safety team, if you see him coming in. <laughs> no, that's not how we deal with Bob or whoever he is. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This, this is worth reading together so that we know. And we're without excuse. Okay, this is Jesus himself. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, somebody sinned against you, you go to him and discuss it. Doesn't want to hear it. Bring two or three others along with you, okay, so that they can either see and understand and hear the charge, or they can also see and understand the unrepentance. Everybody's now starting to see the problem. We're getting people on board to help. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then at that point in time, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So by the time, the third step, by the time that the whole church, the whole family is aware of this immorality, and he still doesn't listen, which is code or, or subtle understanding for repent, then he's not one of us. A Gentile and a tax collector is a sinner that's not been born again, or the way that they're recognizing that. So we need to recognize that person at that point in time as not a believer. If you don't understand that God who you're serving is holy, because you're desiring your unholiness more than his holiness, then you don't know him. And it's up to the church at that point in time to say that. Well, how do we say that? Removing, in our case, practically from membership? Not allowing them to take the Lord's Supper? Not allowing them to attend our, our members' meetings? And, and reaching out to them as we would an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I know that we say a lot of times, uh, you know, Lord, you know, you say where there's two or three gathered in your name, there you are among us. And that's true. Uh, not even that. Wherever I am, if I'm his, he's with me, right? That's what he's promised. So it doesn't have to be two or three with me for him to be with me. He's with me. What we're talking about here is he's going to help us to discern how to deal with sin in our midst. We're going to go to him 
and to ask him, Lord, would you grant them repentance? And Lord, would you help us to understand how to handle them? How to move forward with this? How to make the decisions that we need to make in church discipline? That's us coming together and asking for him to do that. We're seeking that person's repentance. We're seeking that person's goodwill. We're seeking the purity of the church. And if we go to the Lord and say, Lord, help us to do that, to maintain that. You are the just judge. You are the righteous one. This is your body. What do we do? He'll do it. And that's where this verse is, is most powerful is in this context. That we know that together we're not on our own to figure this out. But we are to go to him to figure this out. If you go back to verse 6 in 2 Thessalonians 3, you, you see how Paul's already instructed them to deal with this. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that, keep, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. That's what we are to do. Keep away from them in the sense of Christian fellowship. Does that sound harsh? Yeah, and it should be. Discipline should be painful. It should be corrective. It should be with a heart to restore, not with a heart to destroy. Now imagine if a church faithfully practices this and has instances where they have to practice this. And, and they've gone through this enough that they have seen enough cases of restoration. Imagine what that does with the church's understanding of the gospel. Imagine what that does for the church's understanding of repentance. Imagine what that does for the church's understanding of reconciliation. That's a powerful group of believers. That is a safe group of believers. That is a group of believers where you can find uh, protection and strength to walk in holiness and that when you sin, they can be there to help you, not to judge you, but to help you. But we have to do this in love. Titus 3.10, as a, for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. <laughs> We cannot tolerate an unrepentant immorality. We just can't. If, if the goal, if God's will, is our holiness and sanctification until we get to glorification, then we have to be about that. Not only in our own hearts, firstly in our own hearts, but also in each other's lives. That's what we have to work for. It's holiness. So, as a shepherd, my directive is not to be so concerned with how many get added to the flock. That's not my job. That's God's. My concern is how healthy is the flock. I mean, think about corporate America and the secular world. They all have cores of uh, a set core of values that they will not tolerate people not uh, behaving in or living in. Why wouldn't we do the same? There's more at stake here. Not just bottom lines. There's eternal souls at stake here. 
There's an understanding of the gospel that leads to repentance and that leads to faith and that leads to eternal life. So why are we not concerned about holiness? So why? Why should we do this stuff? 1 Peter 2, 8-12. I'll start it out in 8b. They stumble because they disobey the word. This is the people who don't believe in Jesus. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's a whole theology in that we could look at, huh? But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God chose you, not because you are holy, but to be holy. This is where the Catholic Church has always perverted the gospel. God makes you holy. You cannot approach him in your own holiness and and expect to be received. He saves you unto holiness. He makes a holy people. He makes a righteous uh, royal priesthood. He makes a holy nation. That's what all of scripture from, from Genesis to the maps declares what God is doing, not what you're doing. He causes us to walk in a manner worthy. He he begins a work in us and completes it at the day of Christ Jesus. He calls, he justifies, and he will glorify. God is holy. He will have a holy people, period. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received the mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you know what what the the bad word was against the church uh, in the early days? That they were cannibals. They're eating flesh. They're drinking blood. These people are crazy. But because of their holy conduct, that moniker was overcome. And the church exists today just like Jesus promised. The only institution that he promised to build and that the, that the gates of hell could not prevail against it is still being built because holy people have lived in the holy power of a holy God and have over, overcome the unholy words against it. That's how you overcome evil. It's through good. And how do you do good? By the power and the spirit of God. Period. If you want to live a holy life, and why would you live a holy life? Because it glorifies God. That's who he saved you to be, and he will do it. So you're used to, by nature, just dealing with your flesh and your sin. Like, that's what you do. That's what you want to do. And only through the Lord do you have the power to do something contrary to that? Otherwise, you'll just keep doing what you always do. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. There's the express 
words and these letters from Paul from Jesus about why he's called us. He's not called us to continue on like we have. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us a new heart. Holiness is what he wants. It's what he's making. 1 Peter 1.16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is our head. He's our king. He's our Lord. Who is he? Well, he's holy, holy, holy. So when you get to the book of Revelation, there's a congregation of what? Righteous. And outside of those gates are the weeping and gnashing of teeth of who? The wicked. Now, you're not holy because you're just holy. You're holy because God chose you to be holy. We just, that's what you read in 1 Peter 2. And if he's chosen you to be holy, then get on with it. He's given you the power. He's given you the people. So live in it. Walk in it. Don't find in that a set of strict rules to live by, but find in that freedom to not be a slave to things that pay you in death wages but things that pay you in eternal life wages. And you'll live. You will live unto the glory of God and the power of his spirit unto eternal life. So let's protect our holiness and ourselves and each other and may God be glorified here as the saints seek his holiness. Meditate now on your own personal holiness. How we can encourage that in one another, protect that in one another, and then we'll stay and sing together.